over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've addressed this a few times and we will continue to not be unaware of what's going on in the world around us, not just in terms of the pandemic and the virus, obviously, but, but really the thing that has sort of risen to everybody's attention in the last few weeks, which is the epidemic of police violence against our African-American brothers and sisters who live in this country. So we are uh, trying to, to be as, uh, as, as cognizant and as aware uh, of that as we can. And I really appreciated Matt's prayer just now before we did the, that last song. And I, I did want to say just, and, and again, I, it's hard to come up with new things to say when we've been continuing to try our best to, as, as a white guy who's a pastor, I, I, I often feel at a, at a loss for words. Like I, I often just feel like I don't, I don't know what the most helpful thing to say is in these moments other than it's very frustrating and it's very sad and I wish it was different. Uh, I, I will say though, um, especially since like the this event, the murder of George Floyd, and kind of the, in the aftermath of that, has seemed to have awakened us as a society in in ways that uh, other events in the past that probably should have didn't. So we're we're trying to, I don't know, try, trying to to sort of be inside this moment and and kind of figure out. What, what is the best role for us as, as this conversation kind of rises to the level that it has, has risen to? And, uh, and I mean, really, we're seeing people confront white supremacy in, in ways that are not necessarily expected, sadly, because for a lot of us, it's something we've chosen to ignore. It's something we've been told isn't really that big of a problem. It's something that hasn't been our problem. And so for, for once, it, it's, it seems to be everybody's problem, and it seems to be something that we're all attempting to, to deal with and to struggle with. And, and for, for those of you who have spoken out, for those of you who have reached out and to, to people who are struggling, to people who are marginalized, to people who have been uh, victimized in this kind of way, for those of you who have gone to protests, th this, is, this is good, sacred, holy work. I hope you're being safe when you're doing it, but it, this is this is sacred. These these are these are the things when when we are called to to stand next to people who have been marginalized and take up that struggle, even though it doesn't it doesn't necessarily immediately feel like our struggle. When we choose to join in the cry of others, that is that is holy work. So I it's this again. I, I don't really know exactly what to say other than seeing people with power cause harm to other people should always be unacceptable to us. And that we are raging against that right now is, is good. And I, and I, hope, I hope we don't lose the, the energy for that. I, I hope we continue to be the kinds of people who anytime we see someone who has power or someone who has any amount of control or agency over another person, and then they use that to harm or even kill that other person, I, I hope we never become numb to that. I, I hope that always upsets us. That should upset us. That, sh that should be something that stirs us deep in our soul. Uh, a couple of you have asked if, if there's anything that we're going to, to do as a church uh, in whatever limited way that we can. And honestly, I've been sort of trying to not be the person who has the idea. And I've been trying to allow other people in our community to 
to sort of lead us, and when I say other people in our community, I mean the um, pastors and leaders of predominantly African-American churches and other like communities. And I, I was on the phone a couple of days ago with my, my friend, Pastor Ray Taylor, who is the pastor at Trinity Harvest Church, which is a predominantly African-American church in Hearst. And he was telling me that they're putting together an event and they don't have an exact date for it yet. He, he said he'd let me know and that it, it's gonna be mainly an event for, for the men in, in our community to, to come and bring our sons if we, if we have sons, if not, then, then not. But um, it, it, the, the plan is to, to gather in their parking lot in a social distant kind of awareness sort of format in, in Hearst. And, and it is, his, his kind of vision for this is that it would be a moment for people to gather and to, to pray and to show a sign of grief, but also faith and hope and love for for the people in our in our community who are afraid and for people who have been the victims of the of, of people with more power than they have for far too long so i will as soon as pastor ray lets me know i will spread the word on that and we will as best we can show up if, if any if you feel comfortable doing that then you're invited to be there if you're not comfortable going out and being in a public space with with people right now i totally understand that but if you do want to be a part of this, I will put it up on the, the Facebook page. I'll send it out in an email and let you guys know when and where that's, well, where it's going to be the Trinity Harvest uh, parking lot in Hearst. And so I'll give you the address to that and, um, and we'll let you know where or what time and what day that's going to be, if, if that's something you're interested in, in being a part of. So to be continued on that announcement, I guess. And then also just a reminder, a thing that I continue to have to remind myself of, which is that when we talk about white supremacy. And when we talk about people with power versus people with little to no power, it's really important that I not put that somewhere else. It's really important that as a white person, as a white man in Texas, it's important for me to remember that I'm part of this too. That, that when I look at somebody else and I say that that person has, a, has an issue that they have to deal with, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm shifting the focus away from the thing that I actually do have some sort of control over, which is my own agency in, in all of this. So in the midst of trying to confront uh, injustice and abuse of power, one of the things that's really important for me to do is to look inward and to say, or to ask the question, is it possible that some of this darkness and some of this uh, corrosion is in me? Is it possible that I've benefited from a system that actually is hurting people? And that's, that's a harder question to ask. It's a harder question to really deal with. It's probably one of the reasons why people don't want to talk about this kind of thing, because it's one thing to talk about somebody else who seems like super duper racist, but I don't rise to that level. It's a whole other thing for me to, to look inside of myself and to ask, yeah, but is it possible that the reason I have a hard time confronting this is because there are things in, inside of me that I would have to change? And that's hard. And that's really hard, difficult work to do. So I hope we're doing that. If you're following, Austin Channing Brown has been publishing uh, suggested readings and videos. And if, if, you are, if you feel like you're just swimming in deep water and you don't know exactly where to start in this conversation, start following Austin Channing Brown. She's been... Uh, putting out, like really, like she's been calling it homework assignments. So if this is something you want to learn more about and you're trying to figure out how, what, what's the best way for me to enter into this conversation, 
then following Austin Channing Brown is an excellent way to start. It's a good place to begin and start asking, okay, what, what, is, what is this one person trying to say? And how, how, does, how does what she says affect me? And how I interact with the rest of the world and how I have possibly been a little bit blind to the things that I didn't want to see. So anyway, that's a whole long thing. That's not even the sermon. That's, that, that was all part of the announcements. Um, I did, it, it would have felt completely tone deaf and it, I mean, just, it, it, it would have felt wrong to say nothing, even though, like I said, we, we've, been, we've been interacting with this for the past couple of weeks and I certainly don't want to get to a point where I'm saying the same thing every single week, but I did want to point some people towards some resources and hopefully give everybody an opportunity to, um, to show up in a space if that's something you feel comfortable doing. So why don't I pray for us and we'll get started. God, we thank you for the voices who are leading us right now, for uh, the, the voices in the African-American community, for people like Austin Channing Brown and Andre Henry and Brittany Packnett Cunningham and DeRay McKesson and Clint Smith III and Nicole Hannah-Jones and so many others who are not just taking the time to educate those of us who need to be educated, but to, to lead the charge in the name of racial justice and equality uh, for, for those who for those in our, in our communities that we may not even be aware of who have been the victims of the powerful putting their boots on their necks for, for those who have who have suffered at the hands of someone who was way more powerful than they were we pray for some amount of grace and peace and justice for the family of George Floyd, for the family of Breonna Taylor, for the family of Ahmaud Arbery, for the families of so many others whose names we don't even know. We pray for justice and we pray for peace. And for those of us who are struggling with where do we step into this story, for those of us who are attempting to be useful in this moment, may we be wise, may we be silent when it's our turn to be silent, and may we show up when it's our turn to show up. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. And we're going to get to that in a second. So we're, we're going to finish this Philippians series today. We, we started this uh, in late March because we thought there was going to be like this two-week period that we were going to have to not be in the church. And, you know, we figured we'll just do a really short series for two weeks. And we probably won't even get to the end of the series because it'll just be a couple of weeks. So here we are. It's June. And we're still in this particular format. We, it, as far as I know, we'll still be in this format for at least the next few weeks. And so, um, so we're, we're going we're gonna to finish the Philippian series today. And then next week, we're going to get back into Genesis, which is where, where we were before all of this started. So um, I'll try, I'm going I'm to dust off the Genesis stuff and see if I can remember like, where we were and what we had already talked about and what we we're going to talk about next there's a stray dog. No, that dog is not a stray. Sorry, that's the kind of thing. By the way, a second ago when we were listening to Matt and Allison and the train went by, I just got like a flutter of nostalgia. I, I never thought I would say, I miss that train. That, that train That train sounds like home to me. So um, I'm, I'm really glad Matt was there for the train sound uh, and we were able to fully acknowledge it. So now it's not trains, now it's chirping birds and dogs passing by. So Anyway, all that to say, we're going to finish the Philippian series today, and then we'll move on to, to Genesis next time, I think, hopefully. I've really, if there's anything I've learned in the, next, in, in the last couple of months, it's 
don't plan too far ahead because you really don't know. So my plan as of right now is seven days from now to go back into Genesis. We will see what happens in the next seven days, but that's the current plan. So here's what we're doing. If you're just now joining us, we've been talking about Philippians for a little while. So in the book of Philippians, the reason we've been talking about this book is because this guy named Paul went to a city called Philippi and gathered a group of people together and they started to church. And then later Paul gets arrested while he's away from Philippi and he gets put in a Roman prison cell, probably somewhere near the city of Ephesus. So he's in prison under the rule of the Roman emperor Nero. And he's writing a letter to a group of people who are living in the city of Philippi. And there's a lot of tension there too, because in the, in the city of Philippi, there are lots and lots of people who live there who really, really love Nero, who are very into the current political like way things are being led. So Paul is writing from a place of danger and fear, and he's writing to a group of people who are living in a place of isolation and danger and fear. So that's the whole tone of the book of Philippians. Now, the reason he's writing the book of Philippians is because if you're in a Roman jail cell, this is something we all need to know from time to time, but if you're ever like stuck in a Roman prison, Rome is not interested in using their resources to keep you alive. So one of the things that you need in order to stay alive while you're in prison is you need other people who aren't currently in prison to be sending you resources like food, um, just care package type things, like money, whatever will help you like survive in prison. Somebody else needs to be providing that for you because Rome's not gonna do it. So what we learn is that the people from Philippi, the people that Paul is now writing to, have been sending him supplies and have been sending him resources. They're the reason he has not starved to death in prison. So he's writing this whole letter, basically at its core, as a way of saying, thank you for not letting me starve to death in prison. It's always good to say thank you. So Paul, the, the basic concept of Philippians is kind of rooted in this one basic idea of thank you for not letting me starve to death. So Paul writes this whole thing and he goes to all kinds of different places. He talks about humility. He talks about how you're a part of a story and the story that you're part of isn't over yet. He gets into like, this is how I'm praying for you. He like calls out a couple of people who live in the community and says, I really wish you two would work out your differences. He gets very, <laughs> gets very specific with some of the things that he has to say. So he goes on this pretty, it's a pretty thorough letter. It's, I mean, I realize we have it broken up into four chapters, but and originally, it wasn't broken into four chapters. It was just one long text. And so he covers some ground, is what I'm trying to say. So Paul, after he does all of this, in towards the end of Philippians chapter 4, he ends in this really interesting place that you don't, after everything he said, it seems like a strange place to stop. So in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes this. He says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Maced from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. So he's, he's been, again, he starts off by saying thank you, and now he's kind of landing the plane a bit. And he says, and as you remember, like there were other times where I was like genuinely in need, and you, you the people of Philippi, you were the only ones who were doing anything to, to keep me alive. You were the only people who were sending any sort of resources to keep me from starving to death. So this whole, like this, this wave of generosity didn't just begin when Paul was in prison. It, it was going on before. It's just like after Paul got arrested, they just kept doing it. So then it says, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now, it's interesting that he mentions Thessalonica, and this is sort of an aside, but the city of Thessalonica was famously 
under-resourced. It's a, it, it's a nice way of saying it was, it was a very poor city. So he mentions Thessalonica as a, basically as a way of saying like, look, when I got there, I didn't expect, I, the expectation, it would not have been reasonable for me to expect the people of Thessalonica to be able to, to overflow with resources to provide for me and the people who were with me because the people in Thessalonica largely are having a hard time feeding themselves. So he mentions that that's possibly why he mentions Thessalonica here. He says, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus, who presumably is the person who actually brought him the stuff, the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So this is an interesting sort of way to, to close out the letter because he's, he's about to just like finish out. So here's, here's why this is kind of interesting. Because in Greek and Roman culture in this time, it was understood that if someone gives you a gift, then you are in that person's debt. It, now, and so like if somebody gives you something, if somebody sends you a care package, if somebody gives you food, any sort of resources, the understanding is now it's like a hot potato situation. Now, now the, the onus is on you to, to then repay it somehow. Now it's not just like you're grateful. It is socially you are obligated to now give this person something back. There, there is some sort of reciprocal give and take that is built into the system. You, it's not just that you have something to be grateful for, you now have an obligation. This is, I mean, I, I can come up with a couple of examples of this. Like, this is not totally unfamiliar to us, really. Like, I don't know about you, if you were raised, maybe you were raised in a house where you were told, if anybody ever gives you a gift, you have to send that person a thank you card. And it was, and not that sending thank you cards is bad. I mean, this entire, the entire letter of Philippians is a giant overlong thank you card. So it's not like that thank you cards are bad, but it comes with sort of this baggage, or it can come with this sort of baggage of, if you don't send this person a thank you card, they are going to be deeply offended. So you have to send this person a thank you card, and you have to do it in a specific period of time because there's, there's a, a statute of limitations. If, if you still haven't sent out thank you cards from your wedding 13 years ago, it's possibly too late. So it's, it's not, again, it's not just, well, this is a polite thing to do. This person will appreciate it. They'll know that I appreciated the gift. It is, listen, if you don't send this person a thank you card, it will disrupt the fabric of all of society. Nothing will ever be the same again. This person will never, <laughs> this person will never show up to anything ever again. You will be like crossed out in red in their ledger. You are done. You are dead to this person if you don't send them a thank you card. Like, okay, that's a lot of, there's there's a lot of weight to that. There's a lot of there's a lot of it, it, like intensity to that, and and so it, it's this sort of like built-in thing of like well it's a gift, but it's a gift that also comes with a homework assignment. And if you don't do the homework assignment, you're going to be in very big trouble. Which raises the question like how much of a gift is that? If when you don't perform the act after you've received the gift, then there's there's some sort of like penalty that comes along with that. So it's a gift, but it's a gift with some, some strings attached, even if it's just like etiquette strings. So again, I'm not saying don't send thank you cards. The entire letter of Philippians is Paul sending a thank you card. It is, what we're talking about here is like the, 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 the obligatory weight of like what's gonna happen if you don't send the thank you card. Another, I mean, maybe another example of this, if you have small kids, you might be able to, relate to this. Let's say you're planning your kid's birthday party before all of this and when people were like gathering at like Chuck E. Cheese or trampoline parks or whatever. 
and you're trying to plan your kid's birthday party and you realize like we only have the resources to have a birthday party where our kid invites 10 people. Here's the problem though. Our kid got invited to 15 birthday parties over the past 12 months and each of those 15 other kids, their parents are gonna expect some sort of in invitation because they invited you to theirs so now you gotta be, you, you have to invite them to yours otherwise it's gonna be pandemonium. So now you have like, you're having sleepless nights, you have cold sweats, you're avoiding people in the grocery store because like their kid didn't make the cut. So you have all sorts of like fear of, well, this person, we, we were invited to this person's thing, but we can't invite that person to our kid's thing just because we aren't able to, to do that for everybody right now. So what do we do? And so there is this sort of built-in obligatory system in place that says, okay, a thing that is done out of kindness or out of some amount of generosity also comes with really strong strings that are attached to it. And if you don't do the things that you're expected to, there will be a price to pay. This is what we're talking about. This is how every gift went in Paul's world. So Paul, uh, according to the old system, this section of the letter should have had the part, because again, the whole thing is set up as a thank you note, which is Paul is saying like, I'm so grateful that you guys sent me all this because it kept me alive for, for so long. In the old system, this final section of the letter would have been expected to be the place where Paul acknowledges the value of the gift that he receives, and then all, and then he would then probably, again, according to like normal etiquette of the time, this is the part where Paul is supposed to say, now, if I ever see you again, here are all the things that I will do for you. So here's the part where he's supposed to at least theoretically say that he's going to like volley the thing back to them. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't end the whole thing with, okay, if I ever see you again, I will give you this or I will do this in, in service to you. He, he, he disrupts the transactional nature of the whole system. Instead, he sets it up and he talks about, like, you gave me all these things. He even talked about how you guys were providing for me when nobody else was. This is a perfect opportunity for him to say, like, so since you did all that, here are the things I'm going to do for you. He doesn't do that. Instead, he's, instead of saying, okay, now I owe you these things, he says, your gift was pleasing to God. And that's where he stops at it. He, he doesn't say, okay, now I'm going to owe you. He's saying, God is very pleased with you. So you should be happy about that. This, at, at face value, this sounds like a complete cop-out. This sounds like, um, this, I realize this reference dates me. This, it, date, it dates me more than I wish it did. But um, I, I love the show Seinfeld. There, there's an episode of Seinfeld where the George Costanza character is, is supposed to give Christmas gifts to all of his coworkers, but he doesn't want to give Christmas gifts to all of his coworkers because it's, you know, it's time and it's money. And so what he does instead is he creates the name of a fake charity called the Human Fund, and he, tells all of, and he gives all of his coworkers a little card that says, a donation has been made in your name to the Human Fund. So it costs him nothing, and it's a complete cop-out. So when Paul says, you've given me all of these things, and just be glad that that's a, that is pleasing to God. That should make you happy. And says nothing after that. That to lots of people in the ancient world, that would have felt like basically a donation has been made in your name to the human fund. That would have, that would have felt like a complete cop-out. That would have felt like Paul is, he's basically saying like, I'm not going to participate in the system anymore. He's saying, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to pretend like there's going to be any, some, any sort of like reciprocal nature to this. It sounds, again, it sounds lazy. It sounds like maybe he's not, um, he just doesn't want to bother with it. But but Paul's actually doing something that's pretty interesting because what he's doing is he's not just getting out of an obligation or out of some sort of like um, moral assumption that people expect him to do. He's disrupting the transactional way that people view all of reality. 
Because it is, it is possible to have a transactional view of all of life. We've, we've talked about it already a few times, which is ev everything is about the scorecard. Everybody's keeping track all the time. If this person does something for you, then now you, it's, it's like on you to then do something for them. If somebody invites you over to their house for dinner, what's the thing that you say before you leave? Oh, we'll have to return the favor sometime. Oh, we're gonna have to have, we'll have, we have to have you guys over at some time, which is fine if that's something you really wanna do. But it's, it's a whole other thing if it's like, uh oh, like now I gotta learn to cook and I got I, I we gotta like buy a table or whatever it is that you have to do before you invite people into your house to, to share a meal. So it, it isn't just like, this, this free-flowing reciprocal exchange, it is, it is like the weight, it's, it's, it's an anxiety-laden weight of obligation. It's this transactional view of life. And you have this sense that somebody's keeping score. There, there's always someone who, who is aware of, oh, this person did something for me and I never did this thing for them. There, there's a lot of this, by the way, in segments of American theology in which we see God as like a divine accountant. And this is probably most evident in something that's often referred to as the prosperity gospel, which, which is basically a way of belief or a way of saying that um, if the more money you give, usually the more money you give to your church or the harder you pray or the more you believe in something, the more, the more, you, the, the more you give of whatever the thing is that you're expected to give, then the more likely you are to receive some sort of material benefit from that. Like if, I, the number of times I've heard like someone say something along the lines of, well, maybe you'd get a raise at work if you gave more money to your church. Or maybe, maybe the reason you're suffering is because you haven't been giving more or because you don't have enough faith or because you haven't been fill in the blank here. And so we have built into major segments of the American church, we have built into the whole system this language of transaction, this language of like, well, if I don't do this, then there's, there's gonna be a negative number on the scorecard and I can't have that. So I have to continue volleying the thing back and forth. Or again, if you're suffering, maybe you did something to deserve, maybe your numbers are already in the negative and so you have to like serve or give or like pray your way out of the thing because you're just not doing enough. And this is, this is a pretty toxic way of, of seeing the whole thing, of seeing all of reality, of seeing the divine. And I think what Paul is doing here in this interesting sort of way is he's saying like, maybe that system's not really working. Maybe what we can do is we can do the best that we can. And instead of saying like, okay, maybe that's enough or maybe I need to give a little bit more, maybe instead say that, that the whole thing was, was grace. The whole thing was a gift. And again, like it affects our theology. This way of thinking, by the way, can deeply impact the way that we see the entire rest of the world. Like, I will invite this person to a thing because I think if I do that, it'll make them feel obligated to invite me to their next thing. Or how, I, I am only going to help people who I believe will be able to help me in return. So we have this, we have this way of thinking and of talking about who does and doesn't deserve kindness and who does and doesn't deserve some amount of generosity. And often it comes down to who's a person who can return the favor, who's a person who can contribute the most. And we, we sort of categorize people in, in terms of who, who can participate in this transaction in the way that I find most beneficial. So Paul here, I think, is saying, like, maybe that's a broken way of dealing with things. He, and he waits until the end of the letter, and he mentions, like, yeah, you guys have been giving a lot. And the thing is, and Paul knows he's in prison, and he's very possibly not going to get out. So anything he says here, he could very well say, like, yeah, if I ever see you again, I'll build you a boat or whatever. And he doesn't say any of that. And maybe the reason... 
he doesn't say that is because first of all he knows he probably won't ever see them again but second of all because like what's the point in that like all, all that's going to do is just continue to generate this transactional kind of cycle and paul i think is really not interested at all in that paul doesn't seem to hold a transactional view of things he seems to think that we're all in this together in, in in spite of what one person or group can or cannot contribute paul seems to think that the whole thing is a shared story take a look at um in fact go back to philippians chapter one so right like go back to where where he begins the whole conversation so in philippians chapter one verse seven like right towards the the beginning of the letter paul says it is right for me to uh, to feel this way about you and, and he's been talking about like how he's grateful for them and he's he's um, responding to their generosity. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. There is a shared nature to the story that we're participating in. So he begins the whole thing with, you share, we, we share in God's grace together. But then if you jump to the end, the passage we just looked at at the beginning, in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. So in the beginning, he talks about how they share in grace. And at the end, he talks about you are sharing in my troubles. He bookends the whole thing with we've been sharing this. The whole journey has been a shared journey. There's a place in the middle in chapter 2 where he talks about how your struggles and my struggles are the same. The whole thing. Paul does not see the whole thing as a transaction or a competition or a scoreboard that needs to be kept up with. Paul sees the whole thing as a shared, interactive communal experience. For Paul, he, he does not differentiate. He, he, he says, like, yeah, we're all in this together. So your gifts to me, or my gifts to you, like the, the whole point is not for you then to volley it back to me. The whole point is for us to remember that the whole thing, when we are generous with one another, he says it's pleasing to God. There is something fundamentally good about people helping other people regardless of whether or not we can do something in return for that person or whether or not they can pay us back in some sort of way. So for Paul, the transactional system is flawed because it fails to recognize all the things that we already share with one another. Jesus, by the way, spends a lot of time dismantling transactional theology. Take a look at Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 4, this is right before Jesus preaches this three-chapter sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. But here, what we see is like people are gathering because he's about to start the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23... It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering in severe pain, the demon possessed. I mean, we know how hard it is to get the demon possessed to show up for an event. So the, those, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and, the, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. What, what do all these people have in common? Nothing. This, this group of people, they come from all different places. They're struggling with all sorts of things. You have people with all kinds of different ailments from all kinds of different regions. They all somehow have seemed to end up in this one particular place. And it's when you have this, for this region, a very diverse group of people, it's in this moment that Jesus begins to preach, what, again, what we now refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Then in verse, um, and again, like back when, the, when these documents were first compiled, there were no chapter breaks. So immediately following this whole thing about like all these different groups of people show up, immediately following that in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, 
He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What an interesting way to begin a sermon to a group of people who are not like one another. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, later, as he goes on, this is the beginning of a section known as the Beatitudes. And so he begins to say, like, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, um, blessed are those who mourn. And quite often these passages, and I did a whole series, like, a long time ago, like, back when we first started the church, about each of the, 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 these sections, like, all the different ways that Jesus says that people are blessed here. And one of the things that happens often is that people take a look at this list and what they, they assume that Jesus is saying is, go be more like this person, like be more meek, like blessed are the meek. Okay, so the goal here is for me to be more of a meek person or blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, well then the goal is for me to be more of a peacemaker. But he starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then, and so like, if, if this is prescriptive, then the question we're left with is like, what does it mean for me to want to be more poor in spirit? And that's where it kind of breaks down because you can't choose to be more poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is not something to be sought after. Nobody wants to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit in Jesus's time is a negative term. These are people, poor in spirit means you have nothing, like you don't even have the power to change most of the situations that you're in. Like you, poor in spirit isn't like, well, I guess I can, like I will wake up today and choose to be more poor in spirit. No, 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 poor in spirit is when you've got nothing left. Poor, poor in spirit is these are the people at the bottom of the heap. These are people at the end of their rope. These are people who are powerless. These are people who probably are unwanted in most circles. Nobody wants to be poor in spirit. This is probably why it's significant that at the end of chapter four, it begins listing off people who have different types of ailments. A person who has a physical ailment can't go into the temple. So this, a person with any sort of like physical ailment, it makes them unable to go into the space where they believe they are most able to access connection with God. So if you are that person, if you have been told by, by the religious establishment, you are not welcome here, then it is possible for you to go through life feeling poor in spirit. Poor in spirit isn't something that you would choose for yourself. Poor in spirit is a thing that you sort of realize, I've got nothing left. So it's interesting that it starts, the, the, whole, the whole scene begins with a description of a group of people who probably didn't have many other places where they were able to go. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit don't have anything to give back to you. The poor in spirit, like again, like going back to this transactional idea, the poor in spirit are not able to return favors. The poor in spirit have nothing to offer you. This will be like going to people right now and saying, blessed are the people who have been laid off, or blessed are the victims of police brutality, or blessed are people in hospital beds on ventilators. Nobody wants to be in this category. And so when Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit, what is he saying? He's saying, there are those of you who feel hollowed out, who feel wrung out, who feel empty, who feel beaten down, and he opens the whole thing by saying, blessed are you. What in the world is he talking about? Because in our world, when we use the term blessed, when we hashtag blessed ourselves, what, what often we're talking about is I have received something. Like I got a raise and I was able to use it to buy a new car, hashtag blessed. And so we have this idea of 
blessed means I've received something that's good. And so like some, something of some sort of like measurable value. And, or if you give more, then you'll be blessed even more. And so blessed becomes like a thing that you can measure. But in Jesus's time, that's not what blessed meant. In, in the consciousness of the people in Jesus's world, blessed, first of all, meant these are a person who is blessed in the rabbinical sense is a person who is dialed in to what God is doing in the world. There is a, there is a greater story being told and this type of person is more likely to be aware of those things. Another way to say it would be blessed is a way of saying that God is on your side. So when Jesus enters into this and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who have nothing left to lose. He's saying, this is the group of people to whom I say, God is on your side. God is with you. You are not alone and you are not forgotten. And this isn't about some sort of transactional, again, because we have, in our world, we have this notion of blessed is, like, I've given something and then I will receive something from God. And that the thing that I've received makes me blessed. But Jesus says, no, blessed doesn't really work that way. Blessed is when we recognize that we have nothing left to give and we realize that even in those moments that God is with us. So... This, again, it really flies in the face of this transactional like notion that that we are in some in an exchange with the divine. So blessed in Jesus's world is very different than blessed in our world. Jesus is not telling people to become more poor in spirit. Jesus is explaining something about the nature of all of reality. Jesus is talking about people who are already poor in spirit. The announcement here is blessed are the people who have no reason to feel blessed. Blessed are people who cannot return the blessing. A transactional theology insists that we are constantly acquiring some sort of debt and that we are expected to repay that debt. But Jesus and Paul seem to be pushing back against that idea and saying, no, 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 there, there is no repaying. Like when you receive something good, that's the good thing. That, that is the gift. And the fact that you can't repay it is what makes you blessed because it reminds you how powerless we are sometimes and how God is still on our side. Um, take a look at, uh, let's look at another story. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus kind of gets at this in the form of a parable. In Luke chapter 14, verse 15, it says, uh, if I can find it, yeah, in Luke chapter 14, verse 15, it says, when one of those at the table with him, so Jesus is like at a table, he's having a meal with people, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So he's trying to make some sort of an, an assertion. He's saying like, here's what it means to be blessed. People who have all the food, people who have access to all the resources. Blessed are those who get to eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. So Jesus, rather than saying like, maybe we can rethink that. Instead, Jesus enters into this conversation with a story. So in verse 16, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited, we have a bird in our chimney, by the way. <laughs> It's better than the train. Um, so it says, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, there's a bird in my chimney and I have to go get it out. I'm just, that's not what I said. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the street and alleys of the towns and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. These are obviously not terms that we would use now in the 21st century, 
but at the time, like th this is reflective of the thinking of the time. So then in verse 22, it says, sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. In verse 23, then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the county, country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. So this guy throws a banquet and the, the people he initially invites, they can't come because they've just bought something valuable or they just got married. They have other things going on. In Jesus's time, again, the assumption is if I throw a banquet, the reason I throw a banquet is so that people will show up and then everyone who shows up and eats my food will now owe me a favor. But all the people who would have owed this guy a favor can't show up. So what does the guy do? He doesn't go looking for more people who can return favors. He goes looking for people who can't return favors. He goes looking for people who have some sort of um, infirmity, some people who are poor, people who are on the margins in some sort of way. And he says, bring them in, bring them in, keep, keep inviting people. And he said, the, the motive here is not so that people will owe me fa favors. The motive in the story for, for the rich man throwing the banquet, his motive is so that my house will be full. This guy wants a crowded table. This guy wants his house to be full, not so that a lot of people will owe him favors, but because he loves a good party and he loves a full house. So in Jesus's reality, this particular rich man throws a banquet not to collect favors. He throws a banquet because he loves the joy of throwing a party. In Philippians, Paul says, I received your gift and it was good. The repayment wasn't that Paul owes them something in return. The repayment is the knowledge that they did something good for someone else. In Jesus's economy, it isn't this transactional back and forth. In Jesus's economy, the whole goal is we do good things because it's good to do good things. The, the reward is the knowledge that I did something that made the world a little bit better. If you're showing up to protest so that somebody will take your picture, then that's a transactional way of looking at it. If you're showing up to protest because people are in pain and you feel like your physical presence will help ease the pain or help add to the cry for justice, then the goal is not for you to receive something. The goal is the knowledge that you did something good in the world. When you, when you give someone a gift, when you offer something to someone, the goal is not so that they'll remember that the next time it's their turn to buy something for you for, for, to give gifts, gifts to other people. The goal is that you will have offered something good to, to somebody else. The blessing here is not, I'm gonna give something to you and then you'll give something back to me. I'll do you a favor, then you can owe me a favor. The goal here is we are all part of, we are all sharing in the same story. And anytime any of us can do something good or holy, anytime any of us can offer any amount of grace or peace or love to somebody else and we do it, that is the reward. The knowledge that we did something good, that's the reward. We don't invite people to the banquet because we want to be invited to somebody else's banquets. We invite people to the banquet because we love inviting people to banquets. So in Philippians, Paul says, the whole point of the gift isn't so that we can change, we can keep exchanging and going back and forth. The whole point is so that we can continue to contributing to the good grace, peace, love, the good work that is being done in the world. So maybe, maybe you're a person who has a hard time receiving good things. Maybe anytime something good happens, there's a bit of guilt, there's a bit of shame, there's this sense of like, well, now I've gotta go, now, now I've gotta give this person something else or I'm gonna feel weird about it. Like if, if somebody uh, gives me something, then there's gonna be this like, uh oh, like now, now I've gotta do something for this person. But 
in this economy, in, in the economy that Jesus and Paul are constructing here, it's like, no, 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 maybe the goal is for you to just say, thank you. That meant a lot. Or, or maybe, maybe you're having a hard time right now because you know lots of people who have had their hours cut or their jobs have been lost um, in the past couple of months. But somehow, for you, it hasn't gone that way and things are still going pretty well. And maybe you've got a little bit of survivor's guilt in regards to that. Maybe you're still doing very well in spite of the fact that lots of people that you know and care about aren't. And so you're carrying a lot of guilt with that. Maybe instead of carrying that guilt, you can simply, first of all, like express a tremendous amount of gratitude for that. But then also this, this sense of like, okay, I have, I have these resources. I, I now have something that a lot of people don't have. And maybe there are questions about like, now what can I add to the goodness in the world? Not so that people will feel like my debt was like leveled back off, but because now I have some, some amount of power, resources, access that other people don't. So maybe you have a hard time receiving good things. And maybe just the act of gratitude is a big step for you. Um, may you find that you can be grateful for the good things that you've received. Maybe you don't need to be embarrassed or, um, or anxious about the fact that you have received something good. Maybe you're on the other side of this though. Maybe you feel poor in spirit. Maybe, like a lot of us, maybe 2020 has been an absolute beast and it's only June. And you're having just this sense of, I, I don't know how much longer I can go. Maybe you just feel completely wrung out. This is, these are passages in which Jesus says, you are not alone. You are not forgotten. God is with you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not because everything is going well, but because even in the moments when we feel completely unraveled, we are still seen and we are still loved. Or maybe you've been keeping score and maybe you've got this long list of things that somebody else owes you and somebody else this, this person hasn't done the thing that you expected them to do. You haven't been thanked properly. You have, like, no, someone has not expressed the, the correct amount of gratitude for you. And you're, you're feeling a little, like you're having some feelings about that. Maybe it's time to begin loosening our grips on those expectations a little bit. And instead saying, like, maybe if I'm doing good things so that somebody else will recognize or celebrate those things, Maybe, maybe we've lost the plot. Maybe, maybe the point here wasn't so that we can continue this transaction. Maybe the point was so that we could add something good into the world. Like, um, I've talked about this before, but like, I, I know several pastors who have had people who like, leave their church. People leave churches all the time. And I, I've, I've talked to several pastors who will tell me stories of like, well, this person left my church and after I, I wrote this person a, a letter of recommendation and I did their wedding and blah, 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 blah. And what I hear the person saying is like, yeah, you did your job. You did the thing that you're supposed to do. And this person, for whatever reason, felt like it was time for them to move on. And yeah, that's hurtful, or it can be hurtful, depending on like the circumstances surrounding that. But at the same time, it's like, if you were doing those things so that that person would owe you, then why are you doing them? You don't do good things for people so that they will feel obligated to, to do the things that you want them to do. You do good things for people because that's the right thing to do. We're not in this transactional back and forth system we're, we are invited to live in a system in which Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And when you can't pay somebody back, when you, you, you do the right thing because it's good to do the right thing. You don't invite people to the banquet so that they'll invite you to their banquet. You invite people to the banquet because you love a good banquet. So, so may you see that the reward for doing the right thing is the knowledge that you did the right thing. 
if you're showing up for somebody, if you're offering some amount of grace or love or generosity to somebody, may you do that not so that you will be recognized, not so that somebody will throw you a party. I hope people say thank you. I think it's always great to say thank you. But even if they don't, may you still do those things because it's the right thing to do, because we're invited to participate in a story in which the goal is to keep inviting people to the banquet. So we're gonna finish this series with a final closing word. I'm gonna let Paul have the final word. So in Philippians chapter four, verse 23, the final sentence of this whole letter, Paul says this. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that we are invited to remove ourselves from this transactional cycle of back and forth ad nauseum. For those of us who feel um, like we're always having to keep score, for those of us who always feel behind, for those of us who feel poor in spirit, may we be reminded that you are with us, that we are seen, that we are loved, that we are not forgotten. May we be free from all of the guilt and the fear and the anxiety over all the things that we can't do all the things that we cannot repay. And when it is in our power to do something good, may we do those things not for the purpose of having somebody owe us, but for the purpose of bringing something good into the world. May we be like the man who throws a banquet, not so that people will owe him favors, but because he loves a good banquet. May we be free from all the expectations that we put on ourselves and that we put on other people. And may we find that the transactional system isn't the best system. May we find that the better system is a system of generosity and openness and grace and gratitude. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.